One of the big economic debates and political debates in the last 150 years or more is the debate between socialism and capitalism. In capitalism, in very basic, I'm not going to do a class on capitalism and socialism themselves. We're going to focus on the Jewish perspective. So in capitalism, each person controls their own finances and invests or works however they want, however they choose, and they can earn money from their work, from their investment as they choose. It's a free market. Anyone can sell, buy, work however they want. In socialism, the economy is centrally managed by a government representing on behalf of the people, representing the people. Everyone works in this centralized economy and then the produce, the production is then split. Whatever we produce is split among all the different people within this economy. So historically, property has mostly been personally owned. Economies throughout most of history were not generally managed. Historically, most places had personal ownership and mostly freedom of trade. Trade, trade was pretty free. But then in the last 170 or so years since Karl Marx and other um, socialist thinkers, there's been movements towards socialism or a more centralized and organized economic system. It's been tried in various places, including places that tried communism, which is an extreme form of socialism, mixed with authoritarianism that was a terrible failure in the places that tried it. There are some countries that still today consider themselves not communist, but at least to some extent socialist. So the debate between socialism and capitalism is really, there are really two different debates within that debate. One is an economic debate, a debate in economics. Socialists argue that when an economy is centrally planned, it removes all the unnecessary excess. It ensures that something that, it ensures that people only produce things that are useful. There's no unnecessary, unnecessary production. The right amount is produced of each thing. It's much, much more efficient. It ensures also that production is not, and, and control of goods and services is not based on what's good for the individual, but based on what's good for the public, for public good. It also ensures it removes unnecessary traders who are not producing things, just buying and selling, essentially flipping, taking something from one person for one price and selling it to the next person for the higher price. They didn't produce anything or do anything. You can get rid of them and give it directly from the producers to the person who needs it in a more centralized, organized economy. Capitalists argue that people are naturally driven by personal gain. Without a drive for personal gain, Wow, collective production in theory sounds nice. People don't work that way. People have no reason to work hard or be creative if they're not going to personally gain, if they're not driven by their own profit. Without the drive for gain, why would they work? Why would they be creative? Also, central planning in theory might sound good. Reality, it gives certain people certain power. Power corrupts. It leads to corruption. It also leads to inefficiency. In theory, humans can make the best decisions. In reality, nobody knows how to make the best decisions. It's all trial and error. And so in reality, there is no bureaucrat that knows how to make the perfect decisions and design the perfect economy. And so therefore, in reality, without competition, if people make bad decisions, there's no way to correct mistakes. Capitalists further have argued that there is what's called an invisible market hand. In other words, that the market itself corrects problems within the market. And essentially, people's drive for gain and people's search for opportunity will undercut inefficient things, and they will not succeed. And efficient things and things that are productive and useful will succeed. 
And so as a result, you will end up with the most efficient market as a result. They further argue, capitalists, that traders who don't produce but are basically taking from some people and giving to others, buying for a lower price and selling for a higher price, are not useless, are not getting in the way, but they're central to moving ideas and goods from people who produce them to people who need them. Without traders, you won't get the services and goods from the producers to the right people who actually need them. So today, after many socialist experiments, we can say pretty much for certain that free markets work. They work pretty well, although total free markets don't work. We need some level of regulation, heavy regulation, and also we need minimal corruption. We need both regulation and limited corruption. Corruption also distorts markets, and we also need a strong rule of law. We, with all of those components, proper regulation, government regulation, and limited corruption and strong rule of law, free markets are able to work very well and very efficiently. So, um, so what we, we have though learned that there are parts of the economy perhaps responding to disasters, combating medical emergencies, um, rule of law, collective defense. There are certain things that actually are better managed centrally and don't work so well um, with the um, free market. Certain parts of our society do work better um, when they are centrally managed, and those parts of those, the society in just about all places are indeed centrally managed. The issue is still greatly debated. How much regulation do we actually want? How strong should they be? What is too much regulation? At what point are you stifling um, society? Which things should be centrally managed? There's a lot of things that are up for debate. Should medicine be centrally managed? Should education be centrally managed? And there's a lot of debate as to how, what should be centrally managed, how much regulation we should actually have. But that is all an economic debate. And that is not our subject for today because we didn't come here to study economics. There's another debate between capitalism and socialism, and that is an ethical debate. The ethical debate is advocates of socialism argue that capitalism leads to inequality. Some people become more successful while others fail. In a capitalized system, capital system, some people become very, very wealthy with way more than they'll ever need. Some people remain very, very poor and are unsuccessful and don't have what they need. And so therefore, a centralized system tries to more fairly distribute economic gains to everyone make it more fear. There's no reason why some people have billions of dollars and some people don't have food to eat. We should better distribute, redistribute the wealth. Capitalist, capitalists argue, on the other hand, that there isn't necessarily any ethical obligation to ensure equality. Everyone should be allowed to make as much money as they wish. Why should we limit how wealthy a person should be? What does it bother you if someone is a billionaire? It doesn't hurt you, what they have. The fact some people fail, some people do not make money, or some people may be um, disabled in some way or another and cannot make money, those who do make money have the option out of the freedom and goodness of their heart and should and would be encouraged to give to those who don't have. And so this has really been a debate. Should is, is inequality a bad thing or is it a good thing? Should we use a centralized system to take from those that don't have to give to those who do have or not? We've also part of... Part of... Um, this debate, those that are against inequality argue that not only is inequality unfair and ethically wrong, it also leads to the inability for those who are poor to ever succeed. 
because once you're successful, you can then pay to become more successful. Get the best education for your children, give them money to start, um, give them they have more opportunity. If you are unsuccessful, you've got to, your children then have to go work very young, they can never build skills because they have to work hard, they can never break themselves out of the cycle of poverty. And so this is really an ethical debate. Should we make, give everyone equal, equality, equal opportunity, or equal results? Does equality not really matter? Everyone agrees we should make sure people have what they need, but does equality not really matter? Should we just, whoever has, should do their best to give to those that don't have on their own volition, but nobody should be taking from anyone to give to anyone else. That is really the um, big debate that has been debated for many, many years, the ethical debate. There is, in a sense, a deeper question over here, and that is really, who owns your property? Who owns what you have? Do you own your property? I mean, we believe in private property. Everyone owns their own property. Or really, does society own your property? Is it really society that helps you create your wealth or whatever you have? You only built your business because of what society gave you, because of the opportunities that we as a society gave you. And therefore, essentially, you owe a debt back to society. Everybody is in this together. Your money is not only yours, it really belongs to everyone. And therefore, as a community, as a country, as a nation, or as a state, we have the right to collect some of that to give equal opportunity to others as well. In practice, most Western custom countries have a progressive tax system where the wealthy are taxed significantly more than those that aren't wealthy though it varies. We also all have welfare programs designed to redistribute wealth, um, somewhat, but not necessarily to a large extent. Some communities have, uh, some countries have a more regressive tax, progressive tax system, some have less, some have greater redistribution of wealth, some have less. But our question for today is going to be the big debate over socialism versus capitalism is your money yours? Do you owe a debt to the community? Is inequality okay? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Should we try to make everyone equal or not? Yes, Rob, you have the answer. Okay, so you're speaking about the difference between equal opportunity and equal results. There are those that argue, that kind of break this down, that argue that we should figure out a way to give everyone equal opportunity, but not equal, but we shouldn't necessarily guarantee equal results. Okay, that's, that's, that's definitely an argument. Um, there are those that argue which... I think you were touching on as well, that we don't have a responsibility to give everyone equal opportunity either. We just, equality is before the law. We should just give people equality before the law, that everyone is equal, um, which um, itself needs to, you know, is a question, is everyone indeed equal before the law? But a question of its own, everyone's equal before the law, but we don't need to give everyone necessarily equality of opportunity. Right, so that's also an issue of debate. I think one thing that we didn't touch on is most of European nations were feudal. And that was really a controlled environment. So that's more closer to socialism, and that's why it was easier to go into social. Because it was also very controlled in the social, in the class system. So in a class system like European or many other countries outside of Europe also had feudal-like systems. Um, in a controlled system, um, essentially it 
locks in inequality over many generations, making it extremely difficult, and that's where the equality of opportunity comes in, um, making it very difficult for those that don't have to begin to have. Um, and it locks into an, in an extreme way equality of inequality of opportunity, where people don't even have opportunity to be equal. Um, it does lock that in. We still in our country have some level of inequality and opportunity, um, such as you know, private education, at least uh, upper education, um, leads to inequality of opportunity because of the costs involved. Um, we do have some level, but we don't have much inequality and opportunity, not as much as they had definitely in Europe in a feudal society. Excellent point. Yes, Pika. But doesn't that cause revolution? Very good point. Inequality can cause revolution. Very good point because people don't like being at the bottom and if you have more people at the bottom than at the top and they can get the resources to rebel, maybe they will and they often do. Very good point. So the Torah, yes, So you're talking about an e that if we don't appreciate success and don't reward success in some way, then um, we disincentivize success. You have a very, very good point. Um, very good point. Very good point. So if, if we give people and we don't require them to work, then they have no incentive to work. Excellent point. Socialists would then not give people unless they work. And indeed, in communist countries, if people didn't work, they didn't get. In fact, if you didn't work in the Soviet Union, you would get arrested because you were what they called a parasite, right? You didn't work. So they forced people to work. So let's see what the Torah says. Let's, let's see what the Torah says. So the Torah forbids us from stealing property that belongs to others. The Torah says that very clearly. It's one of the Ten Commandments. The Torah also forbids us from cheating. It's in this week's Parsha. We're forbidden from moving the border of our real estate to take more than, we, than belongs to us. We're not allowed to do anything to take something from somebody else. Clearly, the Torah gives each person ownership of their own property and bans us from taking away anything that belongs to someone else unfairly. So clearly, the Torah believes in private ownership. People own their own property. It's private ownership. It's very clear throughout the Torah. You can buy, you can sell, you own Whatever is yours is yours. You own it. No one can take it from you without your permission. It's yours. So clearly we believe in private ownership. Yet, interestingly, the Torah also forbids us from destroying our own property. The Torah bans us from wasting, which includes destruction of your own property. You don't have the right to destroy your own property for no reason. The Torah furthermore tells us that we are required to help others in need. And not just that because they are in need, and if you have, you should go ahead and help them. The, in Pirkei Avot it says, God tells us, give what is, give um, what is his, what belongs to God, to him, 
to God because you and everything that belongs to you is God's. It doesn't belong to you. Furthermore, the Torah tells us in this week's parsha, Kili Haaretz, the land is mine. You don't even own the land. It belongs to God. So the truth is that in the Torah view, we don't believe that a person owns their own property. It doesn't belong to the community either. It doesn't belong to everyone, to society. Rather, or everything that you have belongs to God. The entire earth belongs to God. In chapter 24 in Psalms we say, La Hashem Haaretz The earth and everything in it, including ourselves and everything we own, belongs to God. And that is why it is forbidden to steal. Not because you're stealing from that person. You're stealing from God. It belongs to God. God gave that item to the care of that individual so that they should look after it and take care of it for him. He gave it into their care and you're taking it away from them. Now they can't take care of it like God wanted them to. That's why stealing is wrong, because it belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. When you take something, you're not taking something belonging to somebody else. You're taking something belonging to God that was in the care of that individual. But everything that we own is not really ours. It's not mine. It's God's, and God put it in my care that I should use it in the way that he wants me to. And for that reason, we have an old Jewish custom. That whenever we write our name on something, you want to label things that it's yours, right? So that people know that this is mine. Whenever you label something, we always first write the words from chapter 24 in Psalms, La Hashem Haaretz Omeloah. Everything belongs to God. This is in care of, and you write your name. Because you don't own it. You don't write your name on it as the owner. You're not the owner. You're just watching it for God's. You write, God's in care of myself. Or you just could write those, we, we write usually the acronym, Lamed Hei Vav, which is an acronym, Lashem Haaretzam Loa. Everything belongs to God. So it's all God's. Everything is God's. It doesn't belong to you. It doesn't belong to society. Who does it belong to? It belongs to God. But God gave it to me. Now, God put it in my care when it belong, when right, we call it belongs to me. I'm the owner, meaning God's the owner, but he gave it into my care. Because everything we have is given to us by God, Judaism was never particularly concerned about inequality. Because God gives some people more and some people less. That's his choice. It's all his. He could do whatever he wants with it. He chose to give one person billions of dollars. I don't know why, but that's what he chose. He gave, put it in their care. He chose to give other people nothing. That's what he chose. He could choose to give, do whatever he wants with his stuff. Give it to whomever he chooses. And so, that's okay. He, all inequality in the world, just like inequality of some people are smarter. Some people are less smart. Some people have skills. Some people don't have skills. Some people have handicaps. All inequality. God created that inequality. Why did he create that inequality? We don't know, but that's the way he created it. Now, to be sure, everybody is equal before God. Before God, to God, before God everybody is equal. And God has a personal relationship with every single person. And we should love and care for each person, regardless of what they have or what they don't have. Because they still are God's child and have a connection with Him. And everyone has a direct relationship with God. So we mentioned earlier, before the law in Torah, before the law, everybody's equal. That's a legal thing. But in what you have, whether possessions, whether skills, whether happiness... What you have, that's God's choice, what he decides to give each one of us. 
So the fact that there's inequality, that's God's choice. We have no moral obligation, therefore, to remove inequality. That's not our problem. That's God's problem. He chose to have inequality. Now, why there's inequality, why God chose to do it that way, um, is really subject of its own class. And you may recall a few months ago, we did a class on if Judaism believes in equality, and we spoke about this in much greater detail. So we have no obligation to remove inequality. But we are commanded to care for people in need, to give everyone whatever they are missing. And we call that tzedakah. Tzedakah is often mistranslated as charity. But that's not a good translation. Because the word tzedakah comes from the word tzedek, justice. It comes from the word justice. Why? Because you're not, it's not that you should be um, kind and nice and give to other people. No, God, if God gave you and didn't give them and they need it, and then God commanded you to give to those in need, then what you have, the reason why it was given to you in your care, was so that you should give it to them. That's what you're supposed to be doing with it. That's what it was given to you for. It's just. You're supposed to give it to them. It's not a choice whether you want to give it to them or not. It's not that you get credit for being kind out of the goodness of your heart giving it to them. You are required to give it to them. God gave it to you to give to them. That's what it's for. It's just. That's the right thing to do. God gave us money, gave us assets, gave us talents so that we should use them to help other people in need and give them not just enough to survive, but we have to give them, the Torah says, whatever they may be lacking. Whatever they may be missing, we have to give them. Now, because no individual has the ability to care for every single person in need, God doesn't give any one person enough to care for everyone else in need. So therefore, the Torah tells us there is a communal responsibility. As a group, as a community, we have a responsibility to ensure that everyone is cared for. And that means as a community, we have to take from those that have to give it to those in need. That's a requirement. Because that's what God gave it to them for. So we enforce that. We take from those that have to give to those that need. So we have both a communal obligation and a personal obligation to take from those that have to give to those in need because God gave it to you. It's not yours, it's God's. He gave it to you to care for others. Now, exactly how it's done, how it should be collected, how much each person should give, how to distribute it, what is considered needs, what is not considered needs, is a subject of its own. And a couple, little while back, we did a class on tzedakah, on charity and the laws of charity in Judaism. And then we spoke in great detail. It's on the podcast. We spoke in great detail about all the rules of tzedakah. But for our class today, what's relevant is that, yes, God gives some, God doesn't give others for reasons known to him, which we discussed in our class on equality. And we have an obligation, both an individual personal obligation and a communal obligation to take from, to take from that which we have or from those who have and to give for those in need, not to make people equal, but because we believe God gives it to you to help others with to give to those in need. If we fail to do so, we're misusing God's things. We're not using them the way he gave them to us. We don't deserve them. Any questions? Yes, I know there's a few. Carol. You're, um, you're supposed to give cheerfully. Yes. And happily. Yes. Not. You should be very happy and, cheer, happy and cheerful to give. Yes, that's part of the tzedakah. Make them feel good. Absolutely. And, and that's really for the subjects of tzedakah. That's really what we spoke about in detail. Yeah. To give. 
not just for our well-being and our mental health. That is what we're here for. That's what we were given our things. So God gave it to you so that you should give it to others. Yes, Karen. Does it matter why you are in need? So you may recall in our class on tzedakah, on charity, we spoke about that in great detail. There's two parts to tzedakah, kupa and tamchoy. There's taking care of people's immediate needs, which we do no questions asked, and then taking care of more long-term, which there we try to do so in a way where we encourage people to um, take care of themselves as best as possible. So it depends if it's immediate or if it's more long-term. But we spoke about it in detail in that class. What about, what about people who just don't want to work their case? Are Same question. It depends if it's immediate or long-term. We spoke about that in detail in our tzedakah class. So... The Torah doesn't requires us to take care of those in need because that's a mitzvah. Not because we need to make everyone equal, but because it's a mitzvah. However, the Torah does is concerned with extreme inequality. And as some of you pointed out, that, um, that while we don't value equality as a value on its own, we do not want to create a society with extreme inequality, because a society with extreme inequality has a lot of other problems. Society with extreme inequality means there's a lot of poor people, usually a very small number of wealthy people. Those wealthy people have a lot of power to control the poor people. Very unhealthy. Someone mentioned earlier revolution. So the Torah avoids societies with, encourages us, or has certain rules to avoid societies with extreme inequality. Um, and be, in extreme inequality, it's very hard for people to break out of their situation and become successful because what often ha happens is those that are successful put obstacles in the path of those that are not successful or their obstacles end up making it hard for people who are, who are on the lower rung of society to break out and um, move up to a higher rung. One such example of how this happens is in land owning, which you mentioned earlier. So most societies over time became split between a very small landed class and a very large landless class. And the way this happens is, and there's various ways that this can happen, but the way it normally happens is there's only a finite amount of land in any given area. What happens is successful people gradually buy up land. People who fail financially are forced to sell their land. Once a person has land, they can use that money to make more money and become even wealthier. A person without land is very limited in their ability to succeed, especially to earn even more money because they're only so they don't really have assets anymore. They only have their own work to earn money, but they don't have assets to earn them money as well. And this was especially true in agrarian societies. Agrarian societies where it was all about, about farming. If you owned land, you were wealthy. If you didn't own land, you were poor. So as a result, what happened over time in most societies is a handful of people over hundreds of years, a handful of people or families gradually came to control all the land, while a very large landless class, peasant class, ended up working the land for them with little opportunity to grow financially, because they were only paid for their labor, which was enough to survive. They had no opportunity to then purchase their own land, to then invest themselves and be able to build their own wealth. The Torah created a system when we first entered the land of Israel, that would not allow that to happen. Every person who entered the promised land with Joshua was given a plot of land. Each, that plot of land could never be sold. If someone needed money, you could lease the land until the Yovo year, until the Jubilee year. 
but you could never sell it. When the Jubilee year came, it went back to the family. If the original owner is no longer alive, it went to their children, but it stayed in the family. In this way, nobody could ever build a large land holdings in Israel. There was no way to build large land holdings. You couldn't become a land, large landowner in Israel because everyone just owned one plot. Each family owned one plot. If you ever leased it, you eventually got it back. Every family was in that way a landed class. Now this Yovo rule was only applicable when we still retained our tribal identity in the land of Israel. Only the first couple hundred years of Judaism. Today we no longer know which tribe we're from, we no longer know where our ancestral land is, was, and therefore we no longer have this rule today. However, there's another way that this still applies um, to some extent today, where the Torah again avoids, has rules to avoid extreme inequality. Another way for in, that inequality is produced is people who have money lend money to those that don't. As a result, the lenders who lend on interest are always making money, interest from loans that they're lending. Poor people are using all the extra money that they're making to pay off those loans and to pay the interest. So as a result, wealthy people keep earning more and more money. Poor people are never able to build wealth because they're always owing money and always have to pay interest. As the saying goes, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. So the Torah firstly banned lending on interest. You're not allowed to lend on interest. It's mentioned in this week's Parsha. Lending on interest is called neshech, or biting. It bites, it slowly eats away at you. Because you pay it off and it keeps getting bigger. And you keep paying it off and it keeps getting bigger. And you never seem to be able to get rid of your debt because it keeps growing. And therefore the Torah forbade from le- us from lending money on interest. Um, furthermore, Jews, to lend to other Jews on interest. You have no right to give someone money, allow it to make money for you. The money you have essentially belongs to God. Now, how Jewish finance works without lending on interest today, our whole financial system is built on lending on interest. We have the federal bank that lends on interest to local banks and banks that lend to businesses and to individuals to buy houses and to build businesses. And how you would run a society without lending on interest is a subject in its own. And a couple months ago, we did a class on um, the Jewish financial system and how the financial system works without lending on interest. Furthermore, the Torah encourages us to offer free loans. It's a mitzvah. Offer free loans without interest. But even then, the Torah says that every seven years, all those loans are absolved. At the end of the Shemitah cycle, which would be at the end of this year, all loans that were lent on interest will be absolved. Now, we have a workaround for that. And God willing, before the end of the year, we'll do a class on the prosbol and on the loans being absolved. But... Um, the Torah tells us to lend regardless, even though you may think you're going to lose all the money. Nevertheless, you should still lend the money because it's a form of tzedakah, a form of charity, of helping people in need. So the Torah bans lending on interest and created this absolving of loans every seven years. Again, it's a way of ensuring our society does not become too unequal. So while Torah does not believe in equality as a value, we don't believe equality as a value, we should try to make people equal, we do believe that societies are inefficient and not good when they become extreme, when there is extreme inequality, and the Torah does have certain safeguards to avoid extreme inequality. What about managing the markets, central planning, so central planning is really, a, um, is really an idea that has come in modern times when we have modern economies that are much, much more um, dynamic and much more complex than ancient economies ever were. However, one thing that is discussed in Torah um, is competition. 
The Torah does allow for competition and encourages competition. But it does forbid us from taking advantage of others. In this week's Parsha, when speaking about doing business with other people, the Torah always speaks about doing business with your brother. And it's important to remember, when we are doing business with other people, it's not just we have to make sure that we get the best deal. You want to get a good deal. But you also have to ensure that the person you are doing business with gets a good deal as well. It has to be a win-win. If not, that's not good business. Why? Because the person you're doing business with is your brother. Not just a foreigner, not just someone out there you don't care if they lose out. It's going to be a win-win where I'm getting a good deal and you're getting a good deal. And if I know that you're getting a bad deal, I need to let you know. You're getting a bad deal. Don't do this. That's bad for you. And that's why in this week's Torah, in this week's Parsha, the Torah tells us you're not allowed to sell commodities or things that have clear market prices. You're not allowed to sell them for more than 20% above their value unless you warn the buyer. You say, you know, market price is 20% lower. You sure you want to buy for this price? Otherwise, you're not allowed to sell it. Why? Because if you're getting a good deal and they're getting a bad deal because they didn't go down the street to check the price down the street. That's not how we should do business. We do business, take care of ourselves, but take care of the other side too. We need to ensure we're both doing well. Same with buying. You cannot buy something for 20% less than its market value without notifying the seller. You know you're selling this below market value. If you want to, that's fine. But just make sure you're aware of that. Otherwise, I might be getting a good deal, but they're getting a bad deal. Such a sale is not only forbidden, it's invalid. And if later the seller says, hey, I, I, I sold it to you for too cheap, that wasn't the value, I made a mistake. Got to return it, it's an invalid sale. Because a sale is only valid, business is only valid when we look out for each other, when we care for each other. It's not just that I care for myself, we're all brothers. We're all family. We've got to look out for everybody else. You've got to make sure your person who you're trading with is also getting a good deal. It's a win-win for everyone. We're also forbidden from undercutting other businesses. Now, on the one hand, we do encourage competition. Competition is good because it makes everybody better. It makes all the businesses more efficient, produce better products, price point, put things at better price points. It makes everyone do a better job when we compete. Competition is good, but only fair competition, not unfair competition. So, for example, if you have a small town that only has room for one particular shop, there simply aren't enough people for two grocery stores, or for two tailors, or for two doctors, or whatever it may be. There's simply not that many people in town. Someone else cannot come and open shop, essentially taking away the limited business from the person who already has the business. Now, this is something that can be very hard to define, right? How, how many people do you need? How much room must there be for another business? We're also forbidden from doing business in a way that will unfairly cut out the competition. An example the Talmud gives is, say there is a store in a cul-de-sac, in a dead-end street. And what you do is you open a store selling the same products, but a little bit closer to the entrance of the street. Same product, same price. So people have no reason to go an extra few hundred feet to the store, next door, if they could buy yours. You're not giving any better products. You don't have a better price. You're not doing anything better. You just got a better location. That's forbidden. You're undercutting the other person. You're just trying to undercut them. 
Go open your store elsewhere. Another example, perhaps more common, more prevalent, is when you open a business or you run your business in a way where you try to drive other businesses out of business. For example, you purposely undersell, undercut prices, selling below profit. You sell Oh, well, we lost our internet. So you sell something purposely below profit in order to undercut another, another business, kind of Amazon style. Below cost. below cost, sorry, yeah, below cost, right? Just to undercut another business. Somebody opens another business, you have a lot of um, a competition, you have a lot of assets perhaps, you're able to, to survive for a little bit, cutting, selling below cost. Or maybe you have other businesses that are making money so you could afford to do it, and you cut out the, this other business just to cut them out. That is forbidden. You're trying to destroy another, another business. You're trying to harm another person. That is forbidden to do. So is monopolizing a market where... So is monopolizing a market where you make deals with the, um, you make deals with suppliers, you make deals with um, other um, other stages within your business that they will only work with you and not work with the competition, and that way you avoid the competition because they can't get the supplies because you've made deals with all the suppliers to give you exclusive rights. So if you monopolize a market, that's also forbidden. You're destroying the competition. The, tar- the Talmud further tells us that when it comes to commodities or necessities, basic needs, grain, other basic needs, um, you're not allowed to price gouge. In other words, if there is a shortage, you can't say, well, people are desperate, I'm going to sell it for really, really high. That is forbidden to do. And if necessary, the Talmud says, the Um, courts or the community can set price controls in a time of shortage to ensure that businesses don't price gouge to make money just because they can. Not because it costs them more, right, to produce, um, not because um, it's, not because, but just simply because they can, because there's a shortage. The Torah forbids all these things. Because while we believe that business While we, while we believe that business and production is a good thing, um, and we believe that competition is a good thing, and uh, trade, free trade is a good thing, it can never come knowingly at the expense of someone else. You cannot actively work to destroy competition, to destroy another business, or harm another person. If you, somebody is not getting a good deal, even competition, You've got to fix that. You cannot make a deal with another person who's not getting a good deal. We need to care for others as well. They are our brothers. We need to care for others too. One other thing that is often associated with socialism, although not technically socialism, is unions. And perhaps we have to one day do a class on unions. Um, It's a fascinating subject of its own. Um, In truth, unions... In truth, unions are not um, socialist really at all, but simply another form of government or another form of doing business. Um, And uh, the Torah does allow for unions, uh, and there's been a lot written on it. 
The Torah does allow for unions, including closed shop unions, whether trade unions or workers' unions. The Torah does allow for it, and unions have the right to negotiate and make contracts as they see fit. Um, of course, they also have certain responsibilities, like anyone else in business, right, to protect the other side, to protect the owners, to protect investors, to protect consumers. They have those responsibilities as well, just like anybody else. But the Torah does allow for that as well. So to su summarize, in short, the Torah does believe in private ownership. Um, but we believe that ultimately everything belongs to God. And we own things in care of God. The Torah does encourage hard work, and does encourage individual responsibility, and the Torah does encourage investment. It has certain safeguards to ensure that we don't create, we, but we're not against inequality. We don't see equality as a value in itself. We do, however, require, are required to care for those in need because we believe God gave us what we have to care for those in need, both on a personal level, individually, and as a community, we are responsible to care for those in need. That's a... That's a Torah response... That's a Torah response... That's a Torah responsibility to care for those in need. Um, so we would support a capitalist system, yet one that cares for everybody in need in the system, one that doesn't allow for extreme inequality or people to create what we would call today generational wealth and ultimately to recognize that our money is not ours but it belongs to God and business practices must be done in a way that everybody gains not where one person takes advantage of the other because ultimately everything belongs to Hashem. The previous Rebbe was one time asked does Judaism support socialism or capitalism? This is back when socialism was a real big thing. And he responded and said that every movement that exists, whether socialism or capitalism or every other economic or political theory and political idea, the reason why they're popular and the reason why they work is because they're, or at least to some extent, nothing, none of them work entirely, but the reason why they're popular and there's some people uh, believe in them to some extent is because there is some truth to it. There is some good to it. And each one of these systems have some level of good. They're not entirely. They have drawbacks. But they have some level of good. And that is because each one has pulled ideas from the Torah. The Torah's ideas are the ultimate good because they come from God. And God's ideas are good. So capitalism has pulled ideas from the Torah that everybody has personal ownership and that it's forbidden to take something from somebody else and that God wants us to work hard and God wants us to invest and take risks. All of those are Torah values. Socialism has taken Torah values as well, that we must see each other as brothers. We must care for another person. We have a personal and collective responsibility to care for all those in need. We must never take advantage of another individual. These are all Torah ideas that were taken by socialism. Each one took ideas from the Torah. Because they have these Torah ideas, that's what makes them at least to some extent successful and popular because they've taken the good out of the Torah and maybe added some not such good ideas of their own. So the truth is whenever you see these ideas, and there's some truth to them, there's a grain of truth, there's some good to them, that's because they pulled the good from the Torah. God is the ultimate good. God ultimately has the best ideas of all.